0: This is They Create Worlds episode 183 A Working Model of Vending
1: If anybody wants to
0: Okay, we're not going to do that the entire episode. (laughs) Oh God, I hope not. But it amused me enough. Absolutely,
1: yes. Do we sound like we're on old time radio? Well, you know, almost. But we're really even going back to a time before radio. We are going back to the very beginning of one of the primary art forms that can be in any way tangentially related to the birth of the video game industry, that being the really, really, really early origins of coin-operated devices and businesses centered around the selling of the
0: same. But Alex, A, we're a video game history podcast. Why do we even care about the (laughs) arcade? And B, we did a few episodes on the arcade way back in the day. I remember looking up that wonderful little, I get to weigh myself by putting in a penny.
1: That's right. And you also got to indulge with your freaky encyclopedic recall of old cartoons as well, as I recall. Yes, we are uh, going a little off the reservation on this one. Some might consider this a tangent. I don't, though. Because we are a podcast not just about video games, but on the history of the video game industry. I mean, that's kind of our primary entry point into this material, is how the video game industries, plural, individually developed over time and then merged into what we would today call the video game industry.
0: That's why his book says, The History of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industries. Volume 1. That's right. That was indeed almost the subtitle.
1: So as part of that, it makes sense to look back at the environment in which the video game was shaped and in which the video game was birthed. And the commercial industry, not the development of the games themselves per se, but the commercialization of it, the industry owes a heck of a lot to the existing coin-operated amusement industry. Would video games have crept in eventually without that? Oh, sure, absolutely. It's an idea that was not going to be denied once the time had come. But I think it's fair to say that without the coin-operated entertainment industry, it would have developed later and it would have developed in a very different way. Because, first of all, it was way too expensive to do anything interesting in the home. I mean, look at the Magnavox Odyssey in 1972. You, you couldn't do very much interesting with that. You needed that extra level of sophistication that you could bring into a coin-operated product because you could make something more expensive because you were not selling it to an individual consumer. You were selling it to an operator who would sell it to all the individual consumers, one nickel, dime, quarter, 50-cent piece. Susan B. Anthony dollar coin at a time. The coin operated amusement industry is very important to the development of the video game industry. And as far as I'm concerned, and since it is 50% my podcast, what I think matters a lot, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it is an important part of this whole video game industry development. So I like looking back at it from time to time. Now, yes, as Jeffrey said, we have indeed covered the rise of the Penny Arcade before and the rise of pinball before, mutoscopes and kinetoscopes, all the scopes, basically, and talked about how all of this stuff kind of coalesced in the late 19th century. Well, Jeffrey, we're going way back. We're starting before that. I'm sure in our past episodes, we kind of made brief mention of the before times in the long, long ago. Various references to working models and early vending devices and all of that. We never focused on it. We were really focusing most of our attention on the 1880s forward, part one. And part two, there is so much more information that has literally just come out. Because Nick Costa, one of the only people, quite frankly, that is researching the very, very early hazy origins of coin-operated devices, amusement and otherwise, the author of the book Automatic Pleasures that is kind of the de facto standard on the 1880s, 1890s, first decade of the 20th century, as much as anything, I mean, both because he did thorough research and because it's about the only book covering it, he has released a new book recently called Penny in the Slot which is focused on the period between 1735 and 1883 and provides some up-to-date research on some of the individuals that created or exhibited coin-operated devices within that time period. Now, we're not going to follow the book. While we are going to vaguely talk about the way olden times, just as a general scene-setting thing, we're not going to go through and talk about everyone in the book. If you're interested in this period— I think you have to be very interested in this period, because it's definitely not a a general interest book. But if you're interested in coin-op machines in this period, I would encourage you to check the book out, because he did do some very thorough research on the era. We're not going to go quite that deep, because this isn't our focus area, and so that would be a little too tangential. But I do want to take some of the threads that you can pull out of that and kind of show how, in broad strokes, we got to the point that by the 1880s, there was a coin-operated industry or a series of coin-operated industries, some based around vending, some based around exhibitions, some based around gambling, amusements, and all of that kind of stuff, because these early developments do lead directly into that, and it's not really an area that has been discussed very much before and certainly has not been discussed by us, video game historians as we are.
0: Those of you who might be thinking of running away in terror— I encourage you to stay here because remember, we've talked about things in the past before, sort of like the whirlwind, Mm -hmm. which why would we care about the whirlwind? Well, it really had great DNA impact on how computers developed further down the line. Mm -hmm. What I believe we're going to see here and what we're going to learn here is what is the fundamental DNA? What did people just experiment with and eventually learn, hey... This is how this stuff works, and I can get people to give me money for it. And then those threads, those ideas cascade down the line. And eventually, in the modern and postmodern arcade era of video games, you can see, hey, here's the influences on that. Wouldn't it be cool if you see something that was started back here in 1800s, and then you can see the influence of that on a video game now?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Promise we'll be back to video games next time. We'll get to that at the end of the show as always. But for today, we are going to get in our way, 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 way back machines and talk about the 19th
0: century and before. Well, then, Alex, I guess we have to go into Mr. Wells' time machine and go back to when it was first published so that we can stop it from happening and taking over the world. But to do that, we have to get money from back then, because they're certainly not going to take this modern American dollar. So, to the time machine, and then to start an arcade business.
1: (laughs) Something like that. The fundamental operation of a coin-operated machine is that you put a coin in a slot, and by doing so, you are essentially unlocking a series of mechanisms
0: that are going to do something. Almost like a Rube Goldberg machine of entertainment.
1: Exactly. So it logically follows that before you can have coin-operated equipment, you need mechanisms of a type that can be activated by your coin doing all of its different things. So the real fundamental very beginning of this whole coin-op thing really goes back to medieval times and the developments in clock making. Clocks have lots of gears and teeth and later on, not in medieval times, but later on as they continue to develop springs and all sorts of weird, funky things in them that can be automated, that can be set to move all on their own based on the configuration. Blockmaking is something that developed in the Middle Ages. It was a jealously guarded technology by those who knew how to do it. This is a period of time when trade was in the hands of guilds, and the idea was that you hoarded knowledge on how to do particular trades and strictly regulate who can join you in those trades because they're very profitable and you want all the money and highly skilled work and all of that. Clock-making slowly developed over hundreds of years in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and beyond. And of course, at some point, also developed to the point where as clocks became more elaborate, they started to have more elaborate demonstrations going on in them as well. Figures coming out and doing this and that and the other thing. The clock in uh, Munich, for instance, in one of the main squares there, is a very famous example of that. Got to give some of these things that Jeff can actually put in the show notes on this one, because there's going to be so little that he can put in the show notes <laughs> on the stuff that we're doing. But that's, that's one that he can throw in there.
0: <laughs> Just think about it. If you actually have at your grandparents' place an old cuckoo clock or a grandfather's clock, mm-hmm. there's actually a lot more there if you study it than you would think either something comes out or in the case of a grandfather's clock like the one that my parents have, there's actually a day-night cycle that cycles behind the clock face.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: They could get very elaborate.
1: As time went on and as you move kind of into the eighteenth century and you're getting to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and you're getting even more complex in the types of mechanisms that you can create, there became a to be a fascination with technology in general, as well. So you had this clockwork technology starting to appear in other forms. One of the most common forms of those were the creation of automatons. These were not coin-operated at this time, but the idea that comes straight out of the figures on clocks themselves was that you would create a mechanical animal or a mechanical person that, through the use of clockwork mechanism, could make gestures could make sounds, could go through little motions as something that's just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, look at what technology can do today. This was particularly prevalent in France and Switzerland, two places that had a very fine clock-making tradition.
0: And if you want to know what an automaton is, if you ever saw the movie Hugo, which came out in 2011, Mm -hmm. an automaton in that movie plays very prominently.
1: Absolutely.
0: So that's where kind of the technology is
1: coming from to do this kind of coin-operated thing. In terms of turning this kind of thing into an exhibition, the history of that actually also goes back to medieval times, because the roots of really the modern arcade, coin-operated arcade, your Dave and Buster's out there today, is really the traveling fair, which was a medieval institution throughout much of Europe. A traveling fair is just what you might think on the face of it. We have to remember that society at that time in Europe was very rural. There were a lot of people living in the countryside, very spread out from each other. They didn't have a lot of things around them to kind of amuse themselves. Not that life was often very amusing back then anyway, struggle for survival and all of that. So there would be fairs that would travel from town to town with performers and attractions very much like a carnival or a circus that you might think of in in even more modern times in 19th and 20th century America, which would bring wonders and amusements and whatnot that people could otherwise not experience. But they had to travel because populations spread out, populations not very wealthy, so of course they can't just plop down in one place. They have to travel around themselves to make money. The traveling fair has a big history in Europe and in Britain, where kind of this transition is going to take place. As traveling fairs met the Industrial Revolution, there were also a lot of big changes going on. For one thing, the Industrial Revolution caused a great upheaval in the distribution of population. Britain was a predominantly rural country, as were many of the European countries. You know, what industry there was was called cottage industry. We still use that term today, but it was called that because it was literally individuals doing piecework in their own individual cottages. You didn't have factories and the like. So one person would spin the cloth, all the steps of the cloth trade. I don't know them off the top of my head, but there are many steps. And instead of doing that in one factory in an assembly line— one person would do their piece of the work in their home, and then it would be taken to another person's home do the next phase, et cetera, et cetera. Even industry was very rural. Well, the Industrial Revolution and the creation of factories caused populations to be concentrated and eventually caused populations to be concentrated in cities. This caused a real crisis for the traveling fair because their entire business was traveling around from town to town getting customs and now all those little rural villages that they went to didn't have the people anymore to go to the fair and support the venues. A lot of fairs started relocating to the cities, and at times even becoming permanent fixtures in the cities. There would still be some fairs traveling around, but there was more and more of an anchoring fairs in towns instead. The Industrial Revolution—it was very magical. Some of the stuff that you could do with modern mechanical technology, as, as Arthur C. Clarke famously said, and I paraphrase. To a sufficiently primitive society, any advanced technology appears as magic. So this new technology was very magical. The possibilities of the world were just opening up. I mean, there was also, in addition to an emphasis on technology, there was an emphasis on illusion and magic and the occult and all of this stuff because it was like a whole new world was opening up in every way possible. So the fairs, of course, embraced this as well, and they started having mechanical contraptions. They started having things like rides— we're starting to approach what's going to become kind of the more modern amusement park in all of this. So, they would have these big main attractions that took a lot of work to set up and only a limited number of people could engage with at a time. So, you got the development of the so called side stalls, which were like in a fair and a carnival still today. I mean, this is still something where these things exist that you still have, which is the idea that we have our big main attractions. While you're waiting for those to be available, go over here to all the little booths, where we have the little carnival games, we have the sideshow attractions, the freaks and geeks, and all of this other stuff that you can pass your time with when you can't do the main event because it's busy or not set up yet, etc. So this is the kind of place where you would start seeing things like automatons on display, things that were kind of weird and unusual and interesting, but weren't like main attractions you were just coming to do this one thing specifically. So you start to get this kind of merging of carnival games and carnival attractions, many types of games that are later turned into coin-operated games, like drop case games and whatnot, are on these side stalls, and this kind of thing is going on. Another thing that is kind of going on here with the Industrial Revolution is this idea that, like I said, we're in a world of new wonders and that technology is improving and it's improving lives. There's also this kind of Victorian ideal of moralizing and making people be upstanding citizens. So these fairs that are starting to become permanent in towns are really frowned upon by high society because it's all part of the moral erosion of the people that they're gambling and engaging in games of chance and interacting with these obscene sights and sounds. And, you know, it's all very low class. The upper class are allowed to be behind closed doors as debauched as they want, even though in public they have to be very prude, but heaven forbid that the lower classes ever have any fun at all. These fairs in the cities kind of started to get a lot of heat, and it was becoming harder and harder for them to stay open in the face of this opposition. They ended up moving to the coast, because as rail was coming in, You now had a fast and relatively cheap means of transport for a populace that lower-class people in the past couldn't move very far from home, and even middle-class people, it could be a difficulty to take a long trip somewhere and have a vacation for a time. The advent of rail made it much easier to go to the coast and have holiday. There was kind of this idea that even in Victorian England, that when you're on holiday on the coast, it's not quite anything goes, but there's kind of this certain understanding that there's a relaxing of standards. So a lot of these show folk, what we would call in America carnies, ended up migrating to these coastal towns that were at the end of these rail lines where people were starting to go on holiday and started opening exhibitions in these locations instead
0: boardwalk arcades
1: and whatnot exactly there were still traveling fairs as well and so the more traditional show folk and traveling fairs and the like they called these people sand dancers because they were relocating to the beaches It's really kind of in these locations that you start to see kind of the birth a few decades later of coin-operated amusements, but we're not quite there yet. I'm setting some of that stage, but now we have to rewind a little bit. While carnival-style fairs are falling out of favor in this time period, there's another kind of fair that is greatly growing in popularity. That is the exhibition. When I'm talking about an exhibition here, obviously that's a very general word, but I'm talking about a place where you go to see all of the latest technological advances and wonders, the way the world is changing, because this really felt like a time when the world was changing in an unprecedented
0: manner. Think of, like, the World Fairs in the 1900s.
1: That's exactly what these are, because we're talking about the beginning of what became the World Fairs. They just weren't called that quite yet. This kind of tradition really goes back once again to France, and it goes back to the France of the Revolution. After the uh, Bourbon dynasty, the Ancien Régime, is overthrown and you have the new republic in France— The Republicans were very big on not just overthrowing l'Ancien Régime, but also all of the trappings of the old regime, including things like Catholicism, which were very tied up in that. The revolutionaries now in charge of the government were very keen to promote science and reason as kind of the new principles of the state and the new kind of, in a way, religion Of people. This kind of comes out of the encyclopedists and the rationalists. I mean, there's a long history of this going on in France amongst the intellectual set, and now it's kind of bringing that into practice. It's also a period of time where things are kind of not going great. We're kind of at war with all of Europe, who kind of, after the revolution entered its more radical phase and they went from deposing the king to cutting the head off the king, got a little uncomfortable with what was going on. There were wars, many, many wars, lots of hardships and lots of power struggles, government changes, purges. This isn't a history of the revolution. Go listen to the Revolutions podcast if you want to know more about the French Revolution. It's really great. Not kidding. Suffice it to say that they want to A, promote science, and B, promote things not being quite so bad as they really seem all around, even though, spoiler alert, they're really that bad. So starting in 1798, they started holding a yearly exhibition called L'Exposition des Produits de l'Industrie Française, which is translated literally as Exposition or Exhibition of the Products of French Industry. This was a place to show off all of the latest in manufacturing products and scientific marvels and mechanical marvels and all of this kind of thing. This tradition continued even after the revolution had run its course, and we went back to monarchy and all of this. They kept having them yearly all the way to 1849. This kind of set the tone and the model for the World's Fair. As we think of it in the United States, we think of things like the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, the New York World's Fair in 1939, the Knoxville World's Fair in 1982, anybody? Magnavox of Magnavox Odyssey fame was a sponsor. So yeah, Knoxville, sure. But anyway, it goes back to this. Now, the British were not entirely happy about this. Because first of all, in this period of time, the British were never particularly happy with the French anyway. Centuries of discord. But the other thing is like, hey, wait a minute. We're the industrial powerhouse people. We're the ones that invented the Industrial Revolution. Steam engine? That was us guys. So why are the French having the big, famous industrial exhibition every year? They're wannabes. They wish they were us. That was kind of one of the big reasons that Prince Albert, husband of Queen Victoria, decided in 1851 to organize the very famous Great Exhibition. The Great Exhibition was essentially the First World's Fair. This started that tradition it was a grand display of everything going on in science and industry and manufacturing and all of this and it brought people from all over the country together in its wake inspired many other exhibitions of science and industry all across the country regional shows again co-opting there was already a tradition of bazaars and fairs and all of this that so we talked about going back to the middle ages but the great exhibition kind of helped turn a lot of these towards this whole scientific and manufacturing and industrial display instead. So these regional exhibitions kind of became the first places where you started to see coin-operated devices that are being developed as part of this whole industrial revolution starting to be displayed to the public in a way that is meant to elicit wonder and is meant to be entertaining in some way, shape, or form. This is the infrastructure we're looking at. Throughout the 1850s, 60s, 70s, we're kind of looking at these exhibitions that are starting to spring up and be held annually all around the United Kingdom. Then, as we get into the 1880s, 1890s, we're starting to look at these relocated show folk who are operating out of these resorts like Blackpool and Brighton, where the tourists are coming on holiday. Now that we've kind of established the infrastructure here, let's get into exactly what kind of coin-operated things we're talking about in this very early period. We have to remember there are a couple of things going on here. First of all, in addition to just having the technology be able to do this kind of thing, there needs to be some kind of purpose to it that is married well with this idea of activating something with a coin. As the fairs get going, and I'm talking about, just the mere exhibition of these things is probably enough. But it, it doesn't start with that, because even to get the idea to put a coin on something at all doesn't logically follow from something like that. Most of the early advances are less in amusements and more in vending. When it comes to vending, it's tricky because you don't have super advanced machinery at this point. You don't have advanced packaging. You don't have advanced machines like the die cutters that you have at Wilson that can separate things automatically, cut things automatically, et cetera. So if you're going to be vending something automatically, it needs to be something that is already predisposed to being a set size. Like You don't have to mess with it in any way. You don't have to package it in any way. You don't have to divide it in any way as part of the process. It has to be something that is ubiquitous enough that people really want to be able to have access to this and are going to be willing to futz around with this new technology and not be like, I don't understand, this is too crazy, uh, forget it, I'm going someplace else. The first, as far as we know, there were a couple of isolated examples of trying to experiment with coin stuff. But as far as we know, the first automatically vended item and the first time that you had a coin mechanism where you would put a coin in a slot and it would automatically release something to you was actually with tobacco. This makes a lot of sense because in these days, a lot of people using tobacco, you know, we're we're talking largely about like pipe smoking and whatnot here.
0: Not a cigarette, not a cigar. And for those who don't know what a pipe is, think of a usually a wooden bowl. Then it had a long tube that would be attached to that little wooden bowl, and you'd put a little bit of tobacco at the very end in that little bowl. You'd light it up, and then you could use the little pipe to suck in the tobacco smoke when you wanted to, and then continue on with what you're doing, but you're not having the direct contact of the actual burning tobacco leaves. Exactly.
1: There was kind of already a fixed idea of how much tobacco you would put in your pipe in one pinch. This is convenient because you could kind of divide it in that way, so to speak, already in your
0: device. Right. You just take whatever that amount is, wrap it in some paper, and put it into the device. Exactly. So this was kind of the beginning point for
1: these kind of coin-operated machines. One of the earliest ones we know of, and a lot of this is shrouded in mystery, Because this is way back in the day. Nobody was really chronicling this at the time. There could be isolated examples of any of this stuff that's been completely missed. Nick Costa did his best to go back through patents and through old newspapers and all of this to find everything he possibly could. One of the earliest known ones, and certainly one of the first things to become widespread, was a thing called a tobacco honor box that was created by a guy by the name of Andrew Rich in the 1820s. There are some interesting things to say here. Obviously, we don't know much about these people because it's not like anyone was doing their biographies. All we have is brief mentions in the press or in directories, trade directories, city directories, etc. So we don't know much, but we do know that Andrew Rich was a clockmaker. There it is. I think that's very important. It should come as no surprise that one of the first people if not the first person to create a true coin-operated mechanism, was a clockmaker, because that's where the technology came from, going all the way back to the Middle Ages. He was a clockmaker in the 1810s and the 1820s in uh, Bridgewater in Dorset in the United Kingdom. This was a period in the post-Napoleonic war period where there was actually a lot of economic hardship in Britain at the end of the war, which often happens really at the end of wars. We don't know exactly how he got on because he's a clockmaker. We don't know exactly how he got on to this honor box thing, but Costa actually has a pretty good theory. And it is entirely a theory, but it's one that makes some sense because he noticed that in 1816 in Bridgewater, there was a rather large, large for the time. I mean, it's not a major corporation. This is the 18 teens, but large for the time business that was a maker of tobacco and snuff boxes for both the home and for taverns that went out of business. And there was a big sale, you know, big essentially bankruptcy sale. You know, everything must go, going out of business sale, essentially, that was advertised in the papers. There were also, according to those advertisements, according to Costa, there were also clock parts that were on sale at this same going out of business sale. So it's not much of a stretch to think that maybe he came to this sale looking at clock parts and then saw all of these different boxes and got to thinking about how he could put the two together. On the other hand, he could have just been someone who went to pubs and saw these snuff boxes in pubs and was like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I put some clock mechanisms on this? Costa goes out of his way to kind of craft this theory, but it is connecting a lot of dots. Did he see the advertisements for this going-out-of-business sale? Did he go to this going-out-of-business sale? Did he see boxes and gears next to each other and were like, you got snuff boxes in my clock gears. You got clock gears in my snuff boxes and, and create the snuff box peanut butter cup. I mean, Occam's Razor would tell us that maybe that's taking a few too many leaps of logic to get to our final destination. And the simpler explanation may just be, hey, this clockmaker hung out in taverns and he noticed that there were these honor boxes. And wouldn't it be great if they had coin control? You see, when I'm talking about honor boxes, I know I've thrown this term around a few times now. The way it worked is that just as a modern bar, at least in places where you still can smoke, We'll have a cigarette vending machine for the person that didn't bring his own cigarettes, but wants to enjoy a nice cigarette with his booze or whatever, you know, common pairing, cigarettes and alcohol or tobacco and alcohol. You have this way for them to bum a cigarette off the machine by paying some money. You had a similar idea at the time when people may be carrying their pipe around with them but aren't necessarily carrying their own tobacco on them. So they go down to the local pub, the local tavern, and they're having a nice drink and they want to have a nice smoke and they're like, oh shoot, I don't have my tobacco with me. So there would be a little tavern box that you could pull some tobacco out of to put in your pipe and smoke it. They were called honor boxes because this is the kind of thing that the tavern owner, the pub proprietor, is very busy doing all sorts of things. He doesn't want to regulate everybody's pipe smoke. He's like, I need another here, I need another here. And so they would set out these boxes that were called honor boxes because you were supposed to open it, take just what you needed for your pipe, leave some money on the bar or wherever for what you took. It relied entirely on the honor system. Obviously, the proprietor is going to kind of keep track of things, and if somebody keeps going back to it and isn't paying, he may notice, and and then things may get ugly. But it relied entirely on the honor system, hence honor boxes. Andrew Rich came up with a system that still, to a degree, relied on the honor system, but mitigated this a little bit because he thought to himself, what if I put a slot on there that you stick a coin in and that activates a mechanism that then opens the box? So that's what he did. You put a coin in, and I think you may have had to press a button as well, like it wasn't completely automatic, but you put a coin in, activated it, lid pops open, and you take your tobacco. It's not a vending machine. It's not vending you a single wrapped package of tobacco. There's still an honor system because once you open that thing, you could theoretically grab everyone in there for your coin. But it at least cut down on the ability to cheat the establishment, because you at least had to insert a penny to get some skin in the game. It's a little easier for the pub owner to kind of keep track of what's going on. We don't know exactly when the first one was introduced. They were definitely in existence by 1829, because by then you're starting to see newspaper articles mentioning these coin-operated honor boxes. Costa thinks it was probably around 1826 that the first ones were created. You know, they started in this Bridgewater area, of course, because that's where Rich was, but they spread. I mean, they spread so that they were in London and and other major towns, and they became a major fixture of pubs and a major expression of new technology, so much so that in the 1830s, when there were one of the periodic movements against technology—we use the term Luddite today—the original Luddites were people that were afraid of these new machines taking their jobs and and were going around sabotaging machines and being very anti-machine— The Luddites are one example of that. They were slightly earlier than this, but another movement in the 1830s called the Swingers actually attacked these honor boxes, these coin-operated honor boxes, and vandalized them as part of their larger protests against machines taking everybody's jobs. Something that's always relevant in the news. Of course, people are talking about AI today and what that means for creative folks like artists and writers. Rebellion against technology is as old as technology itself, is, is kind of the moral of the story there.
0: What is that they say about history? It flows like a river and history repeats? Exactly.
1: More things change, the more they stay the same. So look, there's some relevance. We just tied in 19th century tobacco boxes to 21st century uh, diffusion AI. Go us. <laughs> <laughs> And that's one of the first things that really got people thinking about using coin control for doing things. Again, everything in this period is fits and starts. It's not like in the video game industry where we're like, and then Atari released Pong. Then everyone got excited about Pong and made tens of thousands of Pong units. Then we opened Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Pong Emporium and everyone was happy. It's not like that in this period. There's a lot of dead ends. There's a lot of cul-de-sacs. There's a lot of somebody does something here. 20 years later, somebody does something there. Were they linked? Were they not linked? We don't know. There's not good documentation. Nobody cared about this kind of thing back then to document it. It would be disingenuous to say that there is a direct line from Andrew Rich circa 1826 and Pong circa 1972. That would be a little Rich. Pardon the pun. It is true that this is kind of the beginning of this idea, and it's, again, it's a merging of clockwork technology with the Industrial Revolution and the changing mores of society that allow this to kind of happen. Vending doesn't really get much beyond that for a very long time, and it's for the reasons that I talked about before. You need to have something that is already a distinct unit because you don't have advanced packaging. It's not like you're packaging a bag of crisps. They didn't have bags of crisps back then. It's, it's not like you can cut something off of a roll of something. There are only so many things that make sense to do this with. But this idea of coin control becomes more popular and becomes to take hold. And that brings us to the first of our exhibitionists, which sounds terrible now that I think about it. <laughs> no, no, no. They're fully clothed, I assure you. We're, we're not going back to the Koei days where we have to put a warning on the episode. It gets us to the first of our people that are doing coin-operated exhibitions. And for a long time, this was thought to be a Leeds mechanic by the name of John Dennison. We probably mentioned John Dennison in our previous Penny Arcade episode. It was long ago. I don't know. I don't listen to these things. I just record them. But I'm pretty sure we mentioned John Dennison, who was active in the 1870s. But Nick Costa, through his diligent research, has actually discovered that a lot of this goes back much further than that. So now the earliest person that we know of that was exhibiting a coin-operated apparatus that was meant to provide a moment's amusement, as opposed to vending something like these honor boxes, was a blacksmith by the name of John Perry. Now, the interesting thing about John Perry, we don't know much about his early life. We know he was born in 1809. We know that he was in the town of Bath and was working in a foundry about 1830, We know at this period in his life, he was a despicable drunk, spending all his time down at the pub, spending all of his money at the pub, his family. He was a family man, but the family never had enough because he was pissing away all of his money on cheap gin as the working classes were wont to do from time to time, especially if you uh, listen to the moral crusaders that were railing against all of these things during this period. I say that that's interesting because that means he was spending a lot of time in pubs. He was a blacksmith, which meant that he had experience working with metal and whatnot. So he had kind of a background in a field that was changing very rapidly due to the Industrial Revolution and was involved in crafting. But he was also hanging out in pubs a lot where he most likely would have seen an honor box in his day. Because by the 1830s, they're spreading. Already by 1829, we know from newspaper reports, they've already spread to London by 1829. So if they spread to London by 1829 from Bridgewater, they've kind of spread all over the place. So yes, Costa and us on this show are making another leap of logic. But it's not a very tortured leap of logic. We know he was in pubs because he was described as being a drunk at this point in his life. And we know that pubs in general had honor boxes that were coin-operated by this time because we have newspaper accounts and other recollections of honor boxes in pubs. So not too much of a stretch, I would say. What do you think, Jeffrey?
0: Very likely you all everything said and done. Very, very likely that he saw this or at least someone said something about one and he went to a pub that had it.
1: Exactly. He was probably familiar with coin-operated mechanisms. He was certainly aware of some of what was happening in blacksmithing and metalworking and, and all of this. Then, a few years later, he moved to the town of Yeovil and sobered up, became a new man, and he joined the local temperance society. So he didn't just sober up, but he became a crusader against the evils of drink. In 1842, he created something rather extraordinary, and we don't know exactly why, but we do know it was 1842 because there was a newspaper account recording this that Costa found. He created a model of the local church in which, if you inserted a coin into the base that this model was mounted on... The bells would ring out in one of several patterns. I'm sure many of you even today have heard sometimes when churches have fun with their bells and they'll ring various little musical patterns on their various bells. And his model did that, mirrored the church and the town on a smaller scale. Then he presented it in December 1842. And again, we know this from the newspaper, so we actually have a date on this. He presented this in December 1842 to the curate of the church as a gift. Costa makes another speculation here, but again, it's a fairly reasonable speculation. The church in Yeovil was in a very, very bad state of repair. And about a decade later, in 1851, they began a major renovation of the church that lasted until 1860, because it was in such bad shape. So Costa speculates, like, giving them the model of the church, that could just be like piety, that could just be like, your church is such an amazing part of our community, I present to you this gift. But it's coin-operated. It's designed to take in money. So Costa's speculation is that perhaps he gifted this working model, which is what came to be the name for these exhibitionary pieces, maybe he gifted this working model to the church to use as part of a fundraising scheme to raise funds for the restoration of the church. We don't know that. That's speculation. But why make it coin-operated? Why give it a financial component if there weren't some other motive? And the motive was not personal profit because he gifted it to the church. He did not retain proceeds from
0: it. Well, I don't know about you, Alex, but if I'm going to be tithing to a church, I'd like to get some kind of entertainment out of the loss of my money. So instead of it just going into a basket, it's going into a thing that's going to give me at least a little pretty ditty.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, again, we're making a leap here, and we have to make leaps in this period because the sources just don't exist. But I don't think Costa's probably way off base here. We know the church was in poor repair. We know that a while later it underwent a renovation, and we know that this thing was gifted to the church. So it kind of makes sense. This isn't the only one of these things that he makes. It's not like this is a one-off. He's realized, perhaps because he saw displays of automatons, which are a thing, non-coin-operated automatons are being displayed in this time period, perhaps he saw a display of an automaton, perhaps this first device that he gifted to the church did really well, or who knows what inspired him to take this further, but he doesn't stop there. In 1848, he opens a new smithy that he calls the Model Ironworks. He also, at roughly the same time, opens a new coffee house, which he calls Perry's coffee house. His last name's Perry. He starts making these working models, so-called because they're a scale model of something, and when you put a coin in them, some action happens, so they work, working models. He starts making these working models at the Model Ironworks, and he starts displaying them in Perry's coffee house. So here we are in 1848, we have our earliest known dedicated exhibition space for coin-operated amusements. It's not an arcade. It's not even necessarily a progenitor of an arcade because it is a coffee shop that happens to also have machines. But right here, he's already linked the idea of a public gathering place with coin-operated amusements as early as 1848.
0: Well, I got to wait for the barista to take my order, make my coffee, go to the espresso machine. Back then, they probably had a very primitive espresso machine. So it's going to (laughs) take a little extra longer to do that, especially roasting those beans. So I might as well entertain myself for a few minutes while I wait for my coffee.
1: Right, exactly. So it's incredible to me that it was happening this early. You know, Previously, we thought 1870s is probably when people started making these working models. The one that was considered the very first working model back in the day was a chimney sweep created by a guy named Davidson, Henry Davidson, in 1871. We thought that in the 1870s is when they were starting to exhibit these things, and that it wasn't until like the 1880s when you had places like Blackpool really building up that you started to have permanent displays that could be considered the forerunners of arcades for the first time. We thought it was kind of all in that area, but thanks to Costa's work, we realized it was all the way back in the 1840s. Then John Perry's story actually gets more interesting. Really an interesting figure. I mean, I find it interesting. I'm biased, but this is why I wanted to go back and do this stuff, because it's just, I find it kind of cool.
0: Hey, I'm entertained, and we're doing this right around <laughs> the same time that spiritualism started. So, I mean, if we really want to do an interview with some of these characters, you and I need to break out the spirit <laughs> board and just start having a conversation with them.
1: That's right. It's seance time, baby. This is successful enough that he uh, eventually, sometime in the 1850s, moves into a larger premises called J. Perry's Temperance Commercial Hotel and Boarding House. He's got an eatery or a coffee house or whatever on the ground floor, and then he's, it's a hotel and, and boarding house as well. Like I said, remember, he's very big in the temperance movement. So as another eye-catcher to grab business for his establishment— which is in some ways at a little bit of a disadvantage because he is a teetotaler. He opened a coffee shop and then he opened this temperance house. He's not opening pubs because he's against the alcohol. He creates the first that we know of drink vending machine. He creates a machine that vends lemonade. And he places this machine outside, right outside his boarding house to attract attention to his establishment because it's so out of this world. Have you heard about this new drink place? It's like, oh, yeah? The gin good there? It's like, they don't know. No, they don't have alcohol. Oh, oh, okay. Well, uh, good night. No, 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 no. But wait, they've got this machine out front. And you put a coin
0: in and it gives you lemonade. What? That sour sugar drink? What kind of madman would do that?
1: Lemonade? Please? Bonus points if you get that reference. But again, he understood the draw. He knew that he was at a bit of a disadvantage, presumably, as a drink establishment by not having alcohol. So he put this novelty, even though it's a vending machine, it's also almost serving as an amusement, because I think half the thrill for these people was seeing the machine work.
0: Yeah, definitely. I can remember as a small kid, the first time I saw a drink vending machine, I think it was like a coffee machine or something like that. The cup drops down. Where did the cup come from? I don't know. Now there's hot liquid coming into it? How does it know not to overfill it? Oh, dear. Oh, Mom gets to drink that thing. Okay. Truly, they lived in an age of
1: wonders, in Yeovil in the 1850s. He even expands from there. He starts building more and more of these working models. These working models almost always are demonstrating modern technologies, though not always. He makes one that is horses and carriages just running around in a circle. He makes one that demonstrates the royal train at Windsor Castle. He creates a demonstration of a glove factory of all the little bits of work that are going on in a glove factory. He makes other train displays. He makes moving figures. You know, these are basically living dioramas. Insert a coin and something happens. Often industrial things, sometimes people, just like the old automatons. He starts displaying them, but he also starts loaning them out to other people who wants to display them. He puts a catalog together and he gives other people the opportunity to loan out rent. I don't think they purchase them outright, though I'm not positive about all the economics, but he becomes a distributor.
0: Manufacturer and distributor right there and there.
1: Exactly. He starts having other operators, and these operators are mostly going to these bazaars and these exhibitions that are springing up in the aftermath of the great success of the 1851 Great Exhibition. We're starting to see a market for this thing, and he's starting to take advantage of that.
0: Welcome to Old Jeffrey's Wonderful Working Models Emporium, where we bring you the working model that you need, brought to you live from Mr. Perry's workshop himself. This is the latest and model that you, the exciting consumer, need to have today.
1: Exactly. One of the interesting individuals that follows in his wake is a gentleman by the name of George Lee. George Lee was a confectioner. He had a series, he owned about three at his height, candy stores, confectionery stores. He was born near Bridgewater. He's from the same part of the country that Andrew Rich is. He's from a part of the country that definitely has honor boxes, because he's right in the region. This is no surprise. I mean, a lot of this stuff is happening in the more industrial parts of the nation. You know, the Midlands and whatnot is is where the industry grew up in Britain, so it's no surprise. So he definitely had to have seen honor boxes. He became interested in these contraptions. He started showing Perry's machines at various fairs. In 1866, John Perry expanded even further, like he had had his model ironworks, but he was also, his primary business was in partnership with a couple of other people. But in 1866, he set up his own business, Jay Perry and Son, and that's the point that he really started to really market his machines to other people. So this George Lee fellow, in 1867, exhibits some of Perry's machines at the Yorkshire Fair one of these fairs that has sprung up after the Great Exhibition to be showpieces of science and industry and all of this. He displays again in 1867 at the Coventry Exhibition, where there are two other people also displaying Perry machines. So you can see these Perry machines, these working models are starting to spread. We're getting our first real movement here. It's still not huge. It still fits and starts, but it's beginning. Then Lee must have had a lot of success with this. Because then in 1869, he sets up a permanent exhibition in Gloucester called Lee's Mechanical Model Depot. Again, this is the second that we know of. And again, there could be somebody else obscure out there. It's hard when you go back this far. But this is the second person we know of that set up a permanent place for machines. And it's the first one that we know of where the primary point was the machines, because Perry had them in a coffee house, He had them in his hotel. He understood their value as exhibition pieces, but they were part of another business. This is Lee's Mechanical Model Depot. The whole point of this place is these machines. It's, in a way, the very first arcade.
0: Or the first Nickelodeon or something like that.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. It's the beginning of this kind of thing. And he still is showing them around. He's still doing the traveling circuit because that's where a lot of this happens. Because by the 1870s, you're starting to get more movement. That's when John Dennison, who I mentioned previously, gets into the businesses in the 1870s. You start getting people like George Lee, like John Dennison, who are able to make their living building and exhibiting these machines. It's not just a side business, even if they're still doing something else too. It's not merely a side business. It's becoming a primary form of work, of profession. Which in the 1880s then starts to move to the coastal resorts that are starting to spring up as the show folk, as the fair people who have been doing this stuff since medieval times, are migrating to these coastal resorts. So in 1884, George Lee moves to Blackpool and starts exhibiting his machines there. John Dennison in the 1880s also moves to Blackpool and starts exhibiting his machines there. This is the beginning of the Seaside Resort Arcade, in a way, that is going to flower into something resembling the coin-op amusement industry that the video game is going to become a part of and eventually co-opt 100 years later. But it's all starting in this period and all from the confluence of these societal pressures that are coming about because of the Industrial Revolution, because of Victorian values, because of changing patterns of living that's all going on in this 19th century. So now there are a couple of other threads that we want to pick up here real fast, well, not really fast, this is They Create Worlds, but two other threads that we need to tug on as part of this episode. The first of these is the beginning of coin-operated gaming, by which I mean gambling, which is also starting to arise in this period, but not in Britain. Victorian values gambling bad, strict laws against gambling, except you could bet on the ponies. You could bet in horse races. Why could you bet in horse races? Because the nobility bet on horse races. Nobility just didn't want anyone else to be able to gamble. So you have strict laws against games of chance. It's not like the United States was a Wild West free-for-all for games of chance, but not quite as prudish about these things. As the United States begins to industrialize, and things like working models and whatnot make their way over from Britain. But one of the unique elements of the American industry vis-a-vis British and, and other European industries that are developing around coin control is that you have this gambling element. We don't know exactly how the cross-pollination happened, how the idea of affixing coin slots happened in the U.S., though it probably has some ties to things going on in Britain. But the, the coin slot is something that is understood to be a thing by the 1870s. There was an inventor by the name of John Hall who made the first kind of coin-operated gambling device that we know of, again, that we know of because it's hard going back. It was based around the idea of the cast iron bank. Cast iron banks were, you know, small, essentially piggy banks. Piggy banks go back hundreds of years. They go back before this. But in the 1840s, they started to make these kind of savings banks out of cast iron. As automatons were becoming more widespread in the 1870s, as people were getting an an idea that these were things that existed and things that you can do with coin control, This John Hall guy created one of these banks. He decided, well, why don't we have a bit of fun with it? Instead of just, oh, you put your money in the bank, why don't we, when you put your money in the bank, have something fun happen, presumably like these working models that are starting to sweep Europe, though we don't know exactly what his inspiration was. So he created what he called a race course bank, which is when you inserted a coin, it caused these two horses to race around on top of the bank. But you see, there was probably an ulterior motive to this. He marketed it as a toy, but he probably very deliberately also made it out to be a gambling device because these two horses, it's not like they moved in unison. They actually had a little race around the track, which meant that you could bet on which horse was going to make its way around the track first. It wasn't a constant. It wasn't the same every time these were probably marketed as toys, as a way to obscure the gambling element. But what they were actually doing was him and others like him, because there were a few other of these small horse racing banks that came out right after his, they were probably going around to the local bars and saloons and taverns and saying, hey, I've got this thing that fits on your counter that can generate a little extra custom because people insert coins and then they bet on the results. You know, bet on which horse is going to win, and you can make some real money on this. Probably more than two horses, come to think of it, because that wouldn't be very good odds for the house. But however many horses it was, it was a horse race. This is the first of the product category that was called a trade stimulator, which was a small countertop device that sometimes was completely random chance, sometimes maybe had a little bit of skill, a little bit of way for the player to influence. But these machines that could fit on a countertop in a bar or a shop, a patron could put his spare change in there and bet on a result for the chance to win some money. And of course, the house wins more often than the patron does. So the house makes some extra money as these people spend their spare change. This was probably the very first one of these. There were a few other horse racing styles that came out that were developed in the 1870s. Then in 1877, another inventor in New York by the name of Edward McLaughlin created a toy, as he called it—they were marketed as toys—called the guessing bank, because another popular form of gambling at that time was essentially Wheel of Fortune. It was spin a wheel and see what number it lands on, and you bet on that number. I mean, kind of like roulette, but it's not a roulette wheel. It's, you know, a more primitive wheel than that. The guessing bank, automatically, you put a coin in the slot, and it would automatically spin the wheel at that point and then land on a random number. So again, a very popular form of gambling at the time, but marketed as a toy, as a way of trying to evade the authorities. And this was the beginning of the slot machine, really right here, because they got more sophisticated and you went from, guess the number, to color dials and color wheels, to card machines, to slot machine reels. I mean, there's an evolution here that we're not going to cover in this episode because it gets into a different area, but this is something that was starting in the 1870s in America where the authorities were slightly more permissive towards gambling than they were in the United Kingdom.
0: I'm looking up a few of these cast iron banks, and it's actually really fascinating that any of these still work, let alone the amount of detail that they have in these. Mm -hmm. I will throw a few of these into the show notes. You got all sorts of things. You got like a little Indian fighting a horse for whatever reason. You got the race around the track like what you were just saying was just putting in a penny. You got all sorts of little weird gizmos, a trick pony that does a thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a phenomenon that took off around that time that just people were like, Hey, let's just see what little crazy thingy we can do here.
1: Absolutely. There's kind of the beginning of your slot machine and your gaming element of coin-op. The final thing that we want to look at here is we want to return to the vending machine, because as we talked about in our Penny Arcade episode, the mainstream commercial industry, where they started to become ubiquitous, really started with vending machines. Yes, you had some working model displays here and there. You had working models at fairs. You had these couple of permanent exhibitions, but it really kind of started in vending machines. We talked about a few early attempts at this already, like Perry's Lemonade Machine. I want to talk real fast about another interesting vending thing that didn't quite come off, but it was the first, as far as we know, kind of completely automatic vending machine. It started with postage stamps, because in 1840 there was a standardization of postage. They standardized around penny postage. For the first time, you had... A postage stamp that could essentially be mass-produced, which meant that it could be distributed in a single unit. And because of standardization of postage, there was a huge increase in letter writing. Everyone started writing letters in the 1840s. So by the Great Exhibition in 1851, there was great interest in postage stamps and great interest in letter writing. There was actually an individual there, a mechanical engineer, that displayed the first known postage stamp vendor. This individual was named Thomas Dyke Gill. It's interesting. You weren't allowed to take money at the show. One of the stipulations of the great exhibition is that the individual boost couldn't profit. It was really an exhibition. You weren't there to make money. So he couldn't actually sell stamps there. He could only have people examine the device. There's no indication that he actually put it into production, but it was the very first of these postage stamp vending machines. It was probably viewed there by an individual by the name of Thomas Iveson. The reason we think that he saw it there is is twofold. First of all, his employer at the time, because we know who he was working for at the time, also had a booth at the Great Exhibition, so he was likely at the show. The other thing is, is he very interestingly starts going soon after that by the name Thomas Gill Iveson. He had never had the Gill in his name before. Thomas Dyke Gill was the guy who had the stamp vendor. Then suddenly Iveson is going by Thomas Gill Iveson. Thomas Dyke Gill, Thomas Gill Iveson. Is he perhaps trying to confuse people into thinking that he's the same person? Seems kind of odd to randomly add Gill to the middle of your name. Yeah, a little suspicious. He suddenly comes up with the idea of creating a postage stamp vendor. So he takes it to his brother-in-law, a draper. Draper Drapers and curtains, not drapers and Don Draper. A draper named Simon Denham, who then submits a patent for a postage stamp vendor in 1857. I bring this one up, even though it's a little bit of a footnote, it doesn't seem to have a direct influence, but I bring this up because this is the first known patented coin-operated device. This postage stamp vendor that was designed by Iveson and funded by, and therefore patented by, Denim, because back in those days, it wasn't always the inventor that patented. Sometimes it was the patron that put up the money that took out the patent in their own name. This is the earliest known patent. Now, it may not be the first patent that issued because the patent records before 1850 are spotty. After the 1850s, we have complete English UK patent records going all the way forward. It's the earliest one on the records, but some of these other things, like Rich's honor boxes, may well have been patented, and we just don't know about it. This is the earliest known patented machine. However, it didn't catch on at the time. What finally caught on and what finally made vending machines ubiquitous was a device that was thought up by an individual by the name of John. Glass Sandeman in the 1880s. John Glass Sandeman is sanderman is a guy that before Costa's recent book, all we had was a company that he was a part of. We knew that it was a J.G. Sandeman, but we didn't know anything else. Costa did the research and figured out it was this guy, and he's actually a somewhat interesting fellow. He came from a very well-off family. I mean, he's middle class. He's not nobility, but it's a very well-off family. The family was in the port and sherry shipping business. So they were shipping cheap wine, essentially, and had made a lot of money in that. So he attended King's College as a teenager, and then he bought a commission, which is what you did back then. He bought an officer's commission in the Dragoons in 1853, joined the army as an officer, just in time for the Crimean War. And he actually fought in the Crimean War took part in the charge of the Heavy Brigade, which is not as famous as the charge of the Light Brigade, but was a famous cavalry charge as, as part of the actions around Sebastopol and the Crimean. He continued to purchase additional commissions. He didn't just get promoted on merit back then. That's why officers are commissioned. Just like in sales, you have a sales commission, because back in the day, it was a commission because you bought it. You weren't promoted on merit. So he continued to buy additional ranks until by 1874, he was a lieutenant colonel. He also, in 1869, was appointed to Her Majesty's Honorable Corps of Gentlemen of Arms, which were basically the bodyguards of the monarch. He also, because he came from a business family, a family with money, he also had lots of businesses. So he was also nurturing a lot of side businesses while he was also a commissioned officer, while he was also in this Queen's organization. He and his brother became very close to the Prince of Wales, Edward who later became Edward VII upon Queen Victoria's death. He's really involved in business. He's really involved in industry. He no doubt has some sense of what's going on in the times. Then his brother, Albert, who is also close to the Prince of Wales, ends up attending one of these exhibitions that we've talked about, where all the latest science and technology is on display. He attends an exhibition in 1877 in London called The Smithfield Show. It just so happens that at this show, there's a young gentleman by the name of Percival Everett, who is showcasing a new fancy hay and corn pitcher that he has developed. An automatic machine that after you've cut your corn and cut your hay, instead of having to go through and pick everything up by hand and pitch it onto a cart to take away for bundling, the machine does it for you and just runs over all the freshly cut hay and corn and automatically pitches it into your cart. It's no accident that he had developed an agricultural machine like that, because Percival Everett was actually the son of a farmer. He was born in 1856. His father was a decently well-off farmer that was leasing a nice bit of land in Ryberg. On a piece of this land, it turns out we don't know much about Percival Everett's background, but he definitely seemed to have an aptitude with machines that he displayed at some early age. His father actually allowed him to build a foundry on part of the land that he was leasing, and so they had a little foundry, and he had business partners. They were doing stuff with steam engines and mechanical stuff, and he was filing patents and inventing things. He came up with this hay and corn pitcher that really impressed the Prince of Wales. And Albert Sandeman was there. Albert Sandeman's so impressed that he actually goes into business with Percival Everett. And then because of this connection, presumably, John Sandeman also meets Everett. John Sandeman comes up with an idea. We don't know exactly from where. We don't know if he knew about Denham's earlier postage stamp vendor. I mean, he probably didn't, but you never know. Or if it was just generally, you know, we don't know where the idea came from. But there had been another new craze with the invention of the postcard. This standard piece of mail that you could send without having to go through all the trouble of an envelope and figuring out correct postage and, and all of this. We still have postcards today. We know what they are. So he came up with the idea for a postcard vending machine, and then he commissioned Everett to create the machine, which he did. And We talk about that in our Penny Arcade episode, that they created this machine and then created a company to market this machine. Sandeman was really well connected in society. There was a new postmaster general, Henry Fawcett, who had just been appointed to the post in 1880 and was really really interested in modernizing the postal service. Think Moist von Lipwig. Definitely bonus point if you
0: know that one. <laughs>
1: For all I know, that could be the reason that Sandeman had the idea. It could be that maybe he was talking with Fawcett, who he clearly knew. I don't know if they were friends, but they clearly had a connection. So maybe Fawcett planted the idea in his head. I don't know. But Fawcett was very interested in modernizing the Postal Service, and he was very interested in harnessing the latest in machine technology to help modernize the Postal Service. So the postcard, again, it's a perfect thing to vend because they're already in individual units. You don't have to do anything fancy. Just put your coin in and it can dispense a single postcard. So Fawcett thought this was great. And so the Postal Service in Britain officially adopted that postcard vendor and made sure that it was appearing all over the place. And so this was the first vending machine that got widespread placement. And it led to both Everett and other entrepreneurs to start creating other vending machines starting other companies and spreading vending of all sorts of goods all over Britain and continental Europe. then Everett in 1884, as we talked about in our previous Penny Arcade episode, which is why we're just going to gloss over it now, creates his coin-operated weighing machine that becomes all the rage. And then they move from there to bar amusements like Testers. The slot machines get in there, this, that, and the other, and then the phonograph gets coin-operated in 1889, and boom, you have the birth of the arcade industry, which we talk about in our other episode. So we won't do it again, but this kind of brings us to that point and shows how we got from ancient clockwork techniques from the Middle Ages and ancient traveling fairs designed to keep the peasants amused and got from there to coin-operated amusements in what we would think of today as arcades.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to see just what little influences led to this eventual adoption of coin-operated machines, coin-operated amusements. Mm -hmm. You sort of had two threads going on there, two primary threads in my mind. You had the vending, I'm giving you something for my coin, and then you had the entertainment slash gambling side of it, where I give you a coin and it does something amusing. I may or may not bet on it. Like, oh, I bet you that that church is going to play this song this time, buddy.
1: <laughs> exactly. And and those are the threads that come together. Then starting in 1883, go from these isolated incidents, these isolated entrepreneurs, these isolated experiments, and become the dedicated industry that will eventually house the earliest successful video games roughly 100 years later.
0: I guess all that's left to do at this point is to get back into our time machine and go to the year 25, 25, 25, and hope that the podcast (laughs) is still alive. (laughs) Where shall I make a stopover on our way there?
1: Yes, well, we should probably go back to covering some video games again, uh, before people think that we've really lost our minds. Certainly don't want to be accused of jumping the mechanical shark here. It just so happens that at the time of this recording, by the time that this episode even airs or goes out, it'll be all over. But at the time of recording, we are in the midst of what is being called the first truly exceptional adaptation of a video game property. Sorry, Raul, Julia, and Street Fighter 2. It's not you. That is, of course, The Last of Us, which is also considered by many to be perhaps the finest video game narrative ever created. Of course, The Last of Us is a product of the company Naughty Dog, a company that, incidentally, we have not examined yet on this show. I don't know that we'll go all the way up to doing detailed work on The Last of Us, We try not to go too recent because we can get into trouble with contextualization, but Naughty Dog, of course, has a rich history going all the way back to the 1990s, and there's certainly a wealth of material on the early history and the growth of the company. So even if we don't take it all the way to The Last of Us, this seems like an appropriate time to cover them, and it's a nice developer we haven't done before, so
0: let's do it. If you haven't played the game and it is age-appropriate for you to do so. I highly recommend it. Same thing with the show. It's violent and adult-themed, but very good. (laughs) Absolutely. Definitely PG-13 plus there. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we're just going to have to see how the naughty dog chases the cat next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roller Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License.